you know that thing where you watch something really beautiful but really dark and heavy and you need to move on to something really light and stupid as a chaser to kind of pick yourself up? Yeah, that's like when I was rewatching The Leftovers and I was like, all right, now let's balance it out with some Frasier. Yeah, okay. So very much like that. I just finished watching uh, The Underground Railroad, the Barry Jenkins. Oh, okay. Yeah. I needed to pick myself up after that opus and I moved on to Third Rock from the Sun. That is a deep cut. You know what's funny, though, is that I actually was like, it, it's on a streaming service, and I saw it, and I was like, I mean, I've watched Frasier. Maybe I should check this out. I feel like I got four or five episodes in, and I was like, I feel like I'm good. You, you are you are correct, this. and that, that was the thing. I just I hadn't done it in a very long time, but I'm like, hey, I'm feeling in that mood. So that's, that's where I'm at at this point in the crisis. <laughs> Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 264 of the Matinee Cast. It's a movie-loving podcast of my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Summer has arrived, people. Like, officially, on the calendar and everything. It's not just those late spring days where you try to rush things and you shiver after dark on a patio or over a barbecue because the thermometer got up unseasonably high that afternoon. It is summer. Now. Officially. Once again, though, it's it's a weird summer for films. I mean, usually this time of year we'd be drowning in superhero sequels, franchises, action, and spectacle. And, well... We're not, exactly. I mean, some of those things are out there, yes, but it's all so subdued and restricted that it doesn't really feel like a normal summer at the movies. I guess that means we'll have to entertain ourselves to get some sunshine after a long winter spent in our homes. We'll have to get out into our towns and our neighborhoods and remind ourselves that there's life out there and talk to people. You'll remember people, right? I can think of few people I actually want to start summer with than today's guest. He's often imitated, never duplicated, and always opinionated. Direct from the Beltway and the Film Stage podcast, Brian J. Rowan is here. How are you, Brian J.? What is up? I am all right. It is uh, horrifying to learn that I'm often imitated. Um, who is doing this? Uh, uh, and why are they coming to they, you? They, you know, they, they want to seem real smart. And sometimes grumpy, but uh, I'm like, wait a minute, you're not the real Brian J. Rowan. His eyebrows don't do that. It's 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 very uncanny, really. But I I, I can always thinking, tell. It's the fact that like when I drove to Toronto that one time, yeah. I um I saw those two towers from Enemy, mm-hmm. and so the concept of you being like, hey, I met another fake Brian today <laughs> kind of freaks me out because apparently that's the place that it would happen. <laughs> Next time I see the guy, I'll send you a picture. As, as I mentioned during this episode, we're, we're kind of doing it on the fly. Um, so we're going to spare Mr. Rowan another round of Know Your Enemy. And usually when I do that, we kind of kick our show off with the standard movie podcast. Um, what have you been watching lately? So Mr. Rowan, why don't you get us started? What, what, have you been, uh, what have you been passing your time with there, man? Well, so actually, I'm I'm curious. Have you been back to theaters yet? You know, given your preamble about the the weirdness of the summer. No, I mean, so we're kind of behind y'all because our vaccine rollout kind of sucked, and um, <laughs> you know, on, on top of the normal uh, like people being averse to this thing, suckage, um, the actual government hand down, they wanted to get as many first doses into people as they could, so they actually stretched the window. I think at one point. Or another the window was up as high as like something like uh, four months because i got my first dose in in april and i wasn't scheduled to get my second dose until july hey there's news for you listeners i am also now fully vaxxed so your your favorite pod Congrats. co-host is, uh, is is doing okay because of that um a lot of our reopening has been stalled like now we're getting into a lot of more second doses so stuff is mm-hmm. starting to open up but theaters are way way down the list so no we we have our theaters have been closed no because i i finally got back in theaters for for one movie like earlier this month and i was like elated i bet it was a quiet place too oh which i'm i'm still waiting like crazy on i know like at this stage i'm probably gonna have to watch that from home so i'm already thinking in my head i'm gonna like plug into the stereo i'm gonna slip on the headphones i'm gonna make sure i've got the whole place dark yeah i'm seeing people in like in my friends in the states and my friends in england are all talking about how they they went back to the theater recently and they they almost cried i'm like i want to cry I didn't almost cry. I didn't get that emotional about it, but it was cool. I was like, we're in a movie theater. 
It was me, my brother, my brother-in-law, and my my nephew. And so, like, I'm there with my brother. I'm like, we're getting popcorn. We're splitting popcorn. I'm going to get some snacks. I'm going to get a soda. I never eat snacks during a movie, right, really. Right. But I was like, have to this time. But I was just so amped <laughs> to do this thing that I hadn't done in a while in a way that I rarely did it anyway. Um, but yeah, it was it was awesome. So I mean, that could be one of my what what I've been how, watching. I saw Quiet Place Part. I too. mean, and how I is how is Quiet it. Place Part Two? Like I've I've had to wait a year for it at this stage. So yeah, I, that was the funny part is that I was one of the people who was like, Quiet Place was awesome. I cannot wait. Yeah. You know, screw the haters. I'm I'm here for it. And then like everything shut right. down, and I was really sad. But I finally saw it, and it was I liked Good. it. I liked it a okay. lot. It's a different movie from the first one because I think, you know, the way the first one ended, like, there had to be a paradigm shift. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, you know, spoilers for the first Quiet Place, but suddenly there is, like, the possibility of fighting back against the creatures, so they don't have to be as, like, overpoweringly scary. There can be, like, a little bit of a of a, a vibe of, you know, we we can fight these things, like, let's, you know, we don't have to keep them hidden for as long. Like, we can be a little louder, a little crazier with this this go-around narratively. But, I mean, you know, the characters are still there, the the craft is still there, uh, you got you got Killian Murphy lending his uh, post-apocalyptic gravitas to everything. I mean, I really like that. Well, I guess my question, though, is when I saw the first one, I remember the first one being an incredible theatrical experience because the 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 room had to stay so deadly silent like i was oh, i was yeah. eating yogurt and i was like scratching the bottom of the tub and i felt like i was basically like sounding a gong <laughs> right so is it, now is it that kind of thing as well is it like, oh it's still, that, still yeah. like stay stark still and like don't like don't make any noise because it's really going to take people out of it Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, 100%. All right. My brother and I basically finished the popcorn before the movie started, but then I had I bought a box of the Bunch of Crunch. <laughs> you know, like the crispy rice. Yeah, yeah. Probably the worst thing you like, could have bought except for like nachos. Yeah, so I I didn't even open those up until the Smart end credits started because I was like I'm not about to get murdered <laughs> here in North Carolina. Very good idea. Um, well, I last week got to I just like happened to be on Twitter one of these days where um, Film Spotting was giving away promotional codes to a, a, a film that was coming up. So I like completely dumb lucked my way into something that I really wanted to see. I got to check out the documentary, uh, the Sparks brothers, the, the, the one. So this is a documentary by Edgar Wright. He of, um, hot fuzz and, uh, Shaun of the dead and, uh, Scott Pilgrim fame. He did a documentary on this band. The band is called sparks. They are brothers, but they, they, the band is actually just called sparks. And I've always said that when it comes to, rock documentaries that I should not have to give a shit about a band for it to be a good documentary. Um, you know, right. either you are able to tell the story in a, in a fun and interesting way, or you capture a moment in this band's career and, and, and you, you know, are, you're able to kind of pedal that as the story. I'm thinking about something like um, the Dixie chicks documentary where the, the, the filmmakers happened to be there when Natalie Maines said what she said about Bush. And I am happy to report that Edgar Wright does just that because I, I gotta be honest. I didn't even really know sparks. I knew their name because they did something with Franz Ferdinand uh, 10 years ago or so. And so I knew them from that, but I, and I mean, they've been around a long ass time. So when I heard the preamble for this movie where they're talking about how this band's been around for 50 years, they've done 25 albums. I'm like, how do I not know about these guys? And I felt really dumb. Um, but it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. The, the brothers themselves are really funny and clever. They get a, they get a ton of people in the documentary to talk about them. Like they get everybody from weird Al to Neil Gaiman, uh, show up and show up in the course of this movie to talk about sparks. And, uh, yeah, if you've never heard of sparks before, uh, you'll, you'll enjoy them after the, the documentary. Yeah. I, 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 that was the thing. I was like, everyone's like, Oh, the sparks brothers, you know, Edgar Wright documentary. I was like, who the, yeah, the yeah, that was, yeah, that was me. Exactly. And, and listen, I, <laughs> you know, I'm reasonably musically savvy. And so I, I thought to myself, I should have known about these guys by now. A person could be forgiven if they hadn't actually heard about this band, because they, the part of the thing about the band was that they never really broke incredibly huge. They were one of those bands that other bands really loved. You know, and I, th- I can't remember if it's Beck or 
um, Jack Antonoff talks about how if you get a bunch of musicians together after like 30 minutes, they will inevitably start talking about sparks. So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's one of them, right? Which I mean, it's yeah. great. Like they're, they're fun. They wrote the, um, there's another musical coming out later this year, um, directed by Leo Carax, uh, Annette, is it called? Yes. Yeah. With, um, Adam driver and Marion Cotillard, they wrote the music. Wow. So, you know, it'd be a fun little if people it'd be a fun little preamble if people hadn't really heard about Sparks and they got a fun little story and they're really interesting dudes. Check out the Sparks Brothers documentary and uh, then you know you'd be ready to go for uh, for some Leo Carax musical and who doesn't want to see a Leo Carax musical? Well, there we go. That's our little uh, spiel to get you all warmed up and get you sets and comfortable for our new slang. Our new slang on episode two hundred sixty four is Luca. Come on back right after this. Luca is directed by Enrico Casarosa. It's written by Jesse Andrews, Mike Jones, based on the story by Casarosa. It stars Jacob Tremblay, Jake Dylan Grazer, Emma Berman, Severio Raimundo, Marco Baricelli, Maya Rudolph, and Jim Gaffigan. Luca is a young sea monster living beneath the waves of the Italian Riviera. He spends his days herding goatfish and dreaming of being part of that world above the waves. One day, he bumps into another young sea monster named Alberto, and when he follows Alberto to the surface, not only does he discover that he is safe up here, but also, when he's away from water, he appears like a normal human boy. Luca and Alberto get up to all sorts of shenanigans somewhere beyond the sea. Their quest for a real Vespa scooter brings them to the town of Porto Rosso. There's a race in this town that will give them enough prize money to buy themselves a shabby little Vespa, but... To do that, they must swim, cycle, and eat pasta faster than any of the other children in town. To help them attain that goal, the lads buddy up with a girl from town named Julia, a spunky, clever fisherman's daughter that could use a few new friends herself. There's a lot of places that we could start talking about a film like Luca. We could dig into the gorgeous and fanciful design, or the delightful Italian origins, or even the way it tells a fish-out-of-water story by literally taking a fish out of water. However, I want to make life a little easy on myself for once, since my guest today, Mr. Rowan, replied to my invitation to join me on this episode by mentioning that it is 20-plus viewings of this movie have been worth it. So, pop quiz, hotshot. After 20 plus viewings, where would you like to start? I really can't get over how well they pull off the whole Vespa conceit. <laughs> the first time I watched the movie, you know, I'm I'm like, oh, that's funny. Like the Vespa, like it takes you anywhere you want to go. That's a good joke. And then they like made some Vespas and I was like, OK, that's that's cute that they're doing that. And then like they're talking about going to the town to run away and they're going to get a Vespa. And I was like. Yeah, they're really carrying this Vespa thing through, aren't they? And like, it's it, it is it is that type of thing that could be a one-off joke, but the fact that it just becomes like MacGuffin and metaphor and actual item of desire and like you know symbol and all this other stuff, I'm just like, wow, they like really invested a lot into this story and this this concept of the Vespa taking what is, I don't know. I don't know what a lot of people's views on Vespas are, but like I've never seen them get treated seriously. Like I think of like Larry Crown or I think of, you know, being on the campus of the University of Maryland and just being like, oh, what like thin brunette with a ponytail is going to zip by me on a Vespa today. And like the fact that this movie turned the Vespa into like an actual artifact that you're like, Yes, I want that. That does seem awesome. But also like, oh, what if they like if they're fighting over it and if they get it, like, what does that mean for their future and their friendship? And like, yeah, it's just it, it is a symbol of the craft of this movie and the thought and the care put into the story and how deeply it invests you in its characters and their journey that like, yeah, like this ridiculous, seemingly singled off joke about like, oh, the fish people don't understand the Vespas are kind of lame becomes like no the vespa is in fact everything that one could want out of life <laughs> so first and foremost 264 episodes into this show i promise you nobody else has ever brought up larry crown so good work 
Uh, Vespa scooters. I I know there used to be a shop in Toronto. Uh, believe it or not, there used to be a Vespa shop here where one could buy one. I don't think in this city I've ever seen one out in the wild. I'm certain they are out in the city somewhere, especially if there was a shop here for a while. Um, but yeah, they are. <laughs> I mean, they they look. That looks like the kind of thing that you would kind of like putter around in for a day and be like, yeah, that was fun. And then just go on. It's a very, it's an incredibly like decadent way to get around. Yeah. Because I feel like you can't take it on a highway. No, you you can't get up a whole lot of speed with it. Right. So like, it's good for like tooling around Napa Valley. Like I went to the beach this summer with my family and, um, at the beach, there are people who drive go-karts right. because, like, you know, like you're going to hop in your car, you're going to burn, like, a fifth of a tank of gas yeah, yeah. just to, like, go to the ice cream store. No, you pile into the go-kart. And away you go. So, like, a Vespa would be good there. Yeah. You know? But, like, you don't live in New York City and putter around on a Vespa. No, not, not unless you're, like, home. Alfie. Like, you know, that's, there's another yeah. deep cut. Um, <laughs> but, so, yeah, I mean, the the movie, the really and truly, I mean, what, what's cool about that is they take the they take the all American boy dream of a shiny new bike, and they're like, how can we Euro this up? <laughs> you know? And that's, that is where I, like, I've been doing some reading about, um, Casarosa's influence on this movie and how, you know, he's, he's one of these guys who's been working for uh, Pixar for a while and he had stories in his head and that kind of thing. And he infused his Italian background into a kind of a simple conceit of, of, you know, boys coming of age of boys, you know, trying to mature and deal with their friendship and parents, you know, having to worry about their kids leaving the nest and that kind of thing. And how do we take that and you know give it this italian riviera polish for me that was one of the things that really really drew me in this italian influence of this story like you could set this story anywhere you don't really need to set it on the italian riviera you can set this any old place you want you could set it in new england if you wanted and just change the pasta for some other food but to Lobster yeah, rolls. yeah. Jeez, oh, do not, do not dare eat lobster. Like, do not overindulge in lobster rolls, people. That is not a good idea. They are delicious, but not not an overindulgence. Um, you know, to to get this village and to get like the signage that all has these little in jokes in them, and the you know having all the Italian food in the background, or having uh, Julia you know, she needs to wake up the guys. So she pipes them full of espresso, like these kinds of charms to it are, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you think to yourself, you're almost teetering on appropriation, but at the same time, you do it in such a way where it's just also like charmingly Italian. Oh yeah. It's, it's crazy Italian. And I kind of love how Italian it is oh, yeah. you know, coming from a, a New York Italian family. I'm like, yeah, this is great. <laughs> It could be a tourism tool, right? Like, it really made me want to go back oh, to Italy. Yeah. This town like, does not uh, exist, yeah. but still. Like, Finding Nemo, everyone wanted to get a pet clownfish. Right. And after seeing Luca, people are going to want to go to the Riviera. Exactly. I mean, that's the I even, I'm not, I'm I'm a red Italian, right? You know, like, I, I'm I'm a sauce guy with the tomatoes. And even I, with this movie, was like, yeah, I could try a pesto. <laughs> I'll do some pine nuts. <laughs> Basil's pretty cheap. I can do that. I assume that we're not just talking about um, Stockholm syndrome setting in here. Like you, you genuinely do enjoy this movie. No, I mean, like if I don't like a movie, I don't press the issue with my daughter. Right. Like you know, it's it. I'll just be like, no, let's watch something else. You know, yeah, yeah. I have no problem doing that. But I'm like, oh, she wants to watch Luke again. That's great. I like it. <laughs> like it, I liked it the first time, and so I was happy when she liked it. It was funny because when I first saw Ryan the Last Dragon, I was like. That was beautiful in places, but I had some issues with it. And I feel like the dragon, you know, weirdly was like not a well-defined character. Yeah. Like it's not like the the genie-esque character they want it to be. Right. And I, my like daughter felt the same. I like asked her afterwards. I was like, so who's your favorite character? And she's like, I like Raya. I was like, okay, well, what, do, what do you think about the, the dragon? She's like, no. <laughs> All right. Damn. Um, but no, in, the, in like just watching this movie, I was I, I always enjoy a movie that investigates like 
the complexities of like adolescent male friendships. Yeah. Well, I mean, and like, yeah, that's this movie has that on its mind for damn sure. Yeah, because I it's it's one of those things where I, and I, I like the fact that in this movie, the the girl isn't like a romantic object for one or both of them to fight over. She's just like an entree to a world of like instead of like going on all these crazy adventures. What if I like learned about the world? Yeah. You know, because that really does become like as you kind of hit that point in your life where like I got to start making some decisions about what I want to be as a person. It's it's cartoony in a way that's not like saying it's it's unrealistic but like i just like the the animation honestly like the character designs it's nice to see pixar going away from the photorealism yeah um it's nice that like their mouths <laughs> change shape <laughs> in an unrealistic way you know that they can like sustain damage that would kill a human being <laughs> um and just the way that, like, when they, you know, get wet, like, the, the metamorphosizing effect is really is really awesome and really fun and is deployed creatively. There is something about Luca's dreamlike, you know, just uh, uh, Ghibli-esque evocation of reality <laughs> that's even better than, you know, Soul, which is like, oh, yeah, that is, like, how light comes through a barbershop window. Well, it's, it's crazy because a lot of the real technical muscle in in Luca is kind of happening in the background. There's a scene late in this movie where it starts to rain. And when you're watching those scenes where they're zipping about the town in the rain, the the mm. light does something crazy in this film that, you know, Pixar would not have been able to do 5 or 10 years ago. And I mean, you know, one of the things you you already brought up uh, finding Nemo. One of the things that's wild about this movie is watching those opening scenes that are all taking place underwater and like comparing them to what Pixar did almost 20 years ago with, with uh, finding Nemo. And it's like, Oh man, this, this technology has taken a lot of leaps in terms of not only just what is possible, right? Because I mean, that's, that's obvious, but also just in the way they decide to approach it. Like you were talking about how they've dialed back off trying to get to photorealism. They've obviously changed their approach with how they want to render water um, because that was always the hard thing with 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 uh, animation was how you do water because it's just so bloody hard to nail uh it fought it's like that that uncanny valley is really really wide when it comes to water yeah. but watching those opening scenes where luca's underwater and he's you know zipping around with his little goat fish and you know eating dinner with his his parents and all that jazz all of that is is given this you know, it's it's not meant to be photorealistic way, but it's given this real um, charming, dreamlike approach that really just draws you in, and and it's like, yeah, okay, we're underwater. I I I buy it. You know, there's no there's no pushback to any of that. If you watch the way that the 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 waves lap at the the kind of gravel yep. shore where yep. they first go up, it's it's not realistic, no. but it's very just true and charming. Yeah. I mean, like. There was like there was a time like I guess like five ish years ago when it seemed like every studio cracked at once like this is it we've got water so we're gonna do Finding Dory we're gonna do Moana we're gonna do um, Pixar also did um, Piper oh yeah their shorts, I love that one which is oh, that's a, that's a sweet I, mean, I love movie. that one too. No, I mean, none of these are bad no. but it's clearly like all these people were like we figured out water <laughs> look at it it's everybody just, needed an excuse to get water into their movie all of a sudden. Right. There was like an arms race. Everyone figured it out. And I'm just glad that like now they're like, OK, we clearly can do that. But like, do we have right. to? And is the story best served by that? And so, like, I love the fact that Luca comes in here like, yeah, all these people have like a kind of button nose that's cherry red and like they got the weird hair and, you know, they're it, their ears stick out and their legs go crazy and their mouths grow and shrink, you know, like, like a normal old classic cartoon. It's, it's really, now nice. you already touched on it. Now the, I, the, the thing that I kind of had to, had to laugh at in your, in your opening ramble there was you managed to tap on almost all of my, all of my notes. Although you just did it in like one paragraph off the top of your head. Whereas I slaved away for like an hour with what do I want to bring up? And then, you know, Rowan just like plows through all of it. Um, so, Look, I've seen this movie so many times. <laughs> um, you know, you've got this friendship at the core of this movie between Luca and Angelo, and and you touched on it already about how 
this movie wants to make us really consider the friendship between young boys, right? And how that can change on a dime sometimes. Uh, you know, it's it's shitty, but it, kids are shitty. What do you want to do? Um, <laughs> but, you know, also just how, um, like, the, the, the way that these things can become a substitute for something else whether it's a you know you didn't have like your your own siblings don't want to hang around you or there's problems at home so you don't want to go home or you don't have you know you don't have a good space to go to this movie elegantly and i know i use that word a lot on this podcast packs all of that in to the relationship between luca and alberto which you you know you could choose to ignore all. it's so elegant you could actually choose to ignore it all and just watch this as as a buddy film between two boys but if you pay attention mm-hmm. to any of it the relationship dynamics between them and how it's also kind of grafted onto their own family situations is really something in the in the storytelling of this movie I, I told this story on my on my podcast but I'll say it again here well I remember being excited for Luca. Um, because, and this is a weird, like, you know, I don't feel like I've seen like a children's animated film that took place in the Italian Riviera. I'm pretty sure you haven't. Right. So like, you know, and it's, it's, I can understand people being like, oh, more white Europeans. It's like, yeah, but we haven't seen these white Europeans and like, let's stop pretending that all white people are a block, right. you know, like there's a long history of hatred between all of yes. them. Um, but like I clicked on a, an ad for it on Twitter and I was like, I wonder if I'm the only one who's super excited about this. And one of the first comments was like, oh, like, you know, uh, DreamWorks or Blue Sky wants their animation style back. And I guess like people just were expecting like a realistic Pixar looking movie. But I think that what people forget is that like the reason that we love Pixar isn't just because of their incredible like aesthetic technicians, you know, even though that's obviously part of it. But like it's the story. Yeah. You know, the, the reason that people love Pixar is that Pixar knows how to work a story and really like twine everything together. Yeah. It's it's why, you know, you can turn on it with the good dinosaur because it's a little more obvious because it's clear that like they didn't have the the intention there. Like they weren't they there weren't they didn't have the story down hard enough to keep you from seeing the mechanics. Yeah. But when, when it works, it works and you don't realize it or you realize it and you don't care because the, it's so beautifully pulled off. It's the reason that like you could listen to a violinist do a solo that you've heard before, but this one will make you cry because they're putting something into it that you hadn't gotten previously. Yeah. That's the thing I've, I've long found about Pixar is their storytelling is where they really excel. Like they're not really breaking the mold when it comes to, technical exercises I, I i don't you know there's i'm sure there's a lot of subtleties that people like you and i can't notice i'm sure there's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. that happened in this movie that couldn't happen even two years ago but they are most concerned with telling good stories and a lot of times when their movies fall short it's because the movie just the, the story just didn't land you know but right. meanwhile they are very interested in telling stories about grief and about depression and about death and about isolation and and you know this is a company that makes stories for children and they're selling some very very mature themes and doing it in such a way that you know if you, if you don't even want to pay attention to it you don't have to but all the grown-ups you know when all the grown-ups in the theater are weeping and the kids are wondering why it's because <laughs> the yeah. writers did their job and that's all packed into this story too in the way that as i said these kids relate and their parents relate and you've got this you know you've got two things happening at the same time really three things because you have the way that these these two boys are interacting you have the dynamic when you throw in a third person let alone the fact that it's a girl and then Mm -hmm. on top of all that you have these two groups of parents that are trying to deal as well and and it's all you know just put into this nice little 95 minute box that works out so wonderfully yeah it's it's and and again i think that a lot of people who maybe don't think about it hard enough or just don't like haven't realized it yet don't realize that like that's the thing like you know that you're getting out of pixar it's not that their characters look a certain way you know it's not like illumination and animation that's just (laughs) crazy you know there is there is there is something to the fact that Pixar really takes seriously 
that like you know in 80 years someone might remember one of their movies yeah uh, you know like you know like not all of their movies are about like don't get me wrong a lot of their movies are about selling toys not all of their movies are about selling toys and and that takes that takes some balls well yeah i mean you didn't see like soul plushies no. going i'm sure they exist but you know they're, they're not thinking that they're going to have a huge marketing push on soul plushies yeah just you know, talking about toys, though, I will just give a brief shout out that uh, McDonald's, their toys for Luca yeah. are all bath toys. And um, I'm glad I'm just glad to see it. Like I've I, you know, I've kind of been let down by some of the Happy Meal toys recently. <laughs> and um, I got to say that, like, the Luca toys are, are top notch. It's, it's good to know. I'm, I'll, I'll have to take a look. We put Julia into the middle of this mix. And, you know, speaking as two dudes, I'm sure both of us can think of a time in our lives where a friendship was was thrown for a loop because all of a sudden there's a girl. However, while that does happen here, one of the things I did appreciate is it does not happen because one of these two boys falls for Julia. Luca, oh, yeah, Luca is an, he's enamored with Julia, but he's drawn to her in a, just in a different way than he's drawn to Alberto. Like they both serve different um, purposes for his growing curiosity and, and education. And I think what I liked most about it is he's not drawn to her because he thinks she's cute. She is. Um, but no, she's adorable, yeah. yeah, I mean, everyone, everyone in this movie. Oh, is yeah. the, the, even, even the dad is adorable. <laughs> he's fantastic. Um, both the dads are really, but but especially Julia's dad. Um, yeah. You know, he's drawn to her because she's smart, because she knows things, because she is able to, same as Alberto, show him a different part of the world. And once again, it takes some it takes some balls to write this kind of a story where two boys have their relationship kind of thrown because here's a girl and it's not because one of them thinks she's cute or it's not because they're fighting over her, which would have been the real easy story to tell. Yeah. I would have hated that. There's a lot to like about Julia. Like she's a firecracker, but she's not like Trinity girl boss, like all caps, strong female character. She reminds me of when we first meet the wife in up and she's, you know, oh, 100%. Like, yeah. it's it, like they are, they could be descendants. Uh, yeah, actually, I wouldn't be surprised if they had a family connection. I mean, like, you know, Julia is is a little less type A. I think that she's she's very much like wants to be a leader, but doesn't have the the screaming like, you know, cross your heart, swear it, yeah. like type of thing. You know, she wants to be independent, but learns, you know, through the course of this movie that like, Having a team is really helpful, especially if you've got to eat a bunch of pasta and then ride a bicycle. <laughs> she's coordinated. She's not like, you know, the the kind of like stereotypical, like, well, I can't walk. I'm falling over like Aaron Sorkin type of like female character. Right. They, 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 she's just like truly real and fully rounded. And I like that, like, she's not the kind of like improbably competent young woman that like we've kind of been given as a culture to make up for how shitty treat women were treated in narratives beforehand mm -hmm. as like an overcorrection. Yeah. Like she's just really great. And also she has a hunger for knowledge. And I think that that's, what's great about the interplay between like Luke and Alberto is that like Luca knows nothing and has been nowhere. Then he meets Alberto who's not afraid of anything and seems to know a lot. And that, you know, sparks Luca's curiosity and his desire to learn more. And then he meets someone who actually knows what she's talking about because she's been to school yeah. and, you know, wasn't abandoned by her father yeah. on an island. <laughs> He's chasing the knowledge. And, you know, it, it is I mean, they say it kind of at the end of the movie, but like. He's able to take the certainty and assuredness that Alberto gives him and can marry it to the actual knowledge and the entree to society that Julia provides him and in that way become his own person. And it doesn't involve any romance or anything. No. It's just really nice because like, yeah, it, it's it's kind of cool to like tell children like, you know what the real relationship you should form with is with like learning. Yeah. But I mean, the other <laughs> thing too is he sees the value in all of it like you know there, there's there's a moment two-thirds of the way through this movie where he basically disavows alberto and it mm. is like that is some cold shit and it i was shocked it, i did not see that no coming. but here's the thing it happens like everybody has either 
been privy to that or heard of a story where one kid just turns on another kid for who knows what reason. It's because they're kids and kids are assholes, right? And he, you can see as this movie goes on, like he understands that was a really shitty thing to do. And he wants to try and undo it, but sometimes you just can't. But he sees, like, he, you know, he really understands what Alberto means to who he is becoming. And he wants to try to make it right. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy because even when Julia learns the truth, she puts it together real quick as well. And it, like, I love that there's oh, yeah. these moments of maturity in these kids and that they're not just childish little brats about things there's a lot of other little things in this movie that i like like i I do enjoy that the film never actually explains the nature of the sea monsters they just are you know there's yeah they're just they're another yeah you know uh, if if you're bringing up other movies i can bring up another movie um you know one of the things that threw me well one of the many 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 things that threw me for a giant ass loop about justice league was that they had to have a 15 minute conversation at the beginning of the movie to explain what the shit was at the center of the movie. If your story takes, it requires a 10 minute monologue at the beginning, you probably did something wrong. This movie is like, you know what? These are sea monsters. And when they go above the surface, they turn into humans. There's no magic about it. There's no wish fulfillment about it. It's just what happens and whether or not they decide to share that information is up to them. So it's not like, Oh, Luke has got to sell his voice. Yeah. You know, it's like, no, this is how, this is just how they yeah. operate. It's like, is it magic or is it physical? It's like, it doesn't really matter. No. It's just the truth of their situation. Yeah. Again, you know, it's, it's almost blink and you'll miss it. But when he first tries to move when he's on land, he flops like a fish. Yeah even though he's fully human yeah, totally <laughs> and his eyes are really wide yeah. it's it's uh it's i mean it also it, it's lovely because it allows the metaphor of literally he has to learn how to stand on his own two feet oh yeah, my god so, i see, oh, I see what you did there okay anytime that you, i mean like that's the thing is like anytime you have someone who like changes and is suddenly like trying to pass as a human it's like all right so which which metaphor are we going for here? But like you said, it 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 can be almost anything. You know, it, it's very easy to go for stuff like, you know, sexuality or even like politics, like, you know, leaving home and stuff like that. But like, you know, you're just you used to have nerdy friends and like maybe you're the one who grew up faster and like matured more. And now people are looking at you and they're like, what are you doing with that nerd? And you're just like, oh, that's my best friend for the last 10 years. But you're like, yeah, he's a nerd. I'm just going to hang out with the pretty people. Now. Yeah. Meanwhile, the nerd, the nerd it's, is like, uh, thanks, buddy. Yeah, exactly. And he goes slinks off to, you know, go to his home where his dad left him forever. That is like the darkest part of this movie is that like that that. (laughs) But it's but like I said, like they're not they're 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 smart enough to not just make that a thing that Luca then has to feel bad about. Because, I mean, like at the end of the movie, Alberto's like, I'm not going to travel the world. You're going to go and learn. I'm going to stay here and like, you know, be with Massimo and help him fish because like you have had a like family in that way you are comfortable enough to go out on your own but i still need to work on myself as an individual and one of the ways to do that is to be here and make myself a part of this family unit and like see where that goes like i need that that's I, i mean what the film does very nicely at its end is it understands that all of these people that we've met they have a different pressing need at, at this given moment, you know, like Julia has this need that when she goes to this town for her summer, it's probably like her summers are probably hell, you know, like none of the kids like her. She hangs out with her dad. She's, you know, she's driving fish around town while the other kids are playing football, you know, so her need is to have companionship during the summer. Luca's need is to understand the world around him. Alberto's need is to have a family acceptance after being abandoned. And then even when you get into like, you know, the parents and that kind of thing, um, Massimo needs, uh, you know, he, he obviously, if he only gets his daughter for two or three months out of a year, he would like to have, uh, you know, a fellow or like a son figure in his life that he can pass on some of his knowledge to and, and have that kind of companionship. And then, you know, there's, it goes on and on and on. Everybody basically, well, that's like everybody basically has a need in this movie, except for Ercole. And, and he's just a, dick um Uh, one of my one of my favorite moments in the movie actually in terms of like emotional catharsis and and kind of like winding up the story is it actually happens during the end credits and it's 
the point where you see that Massimo does eventually gift Alberto a knife of his yes. own. Yes. Um, the one thing I do want to bring up, because I, I, I don't usually bring up reactions in the course of this conversation, because for all kinds of reasons, but there was one reaction that I saw and it really made me shake my head. And I don't want to dismiss it because I understand where it's coming from, but I don't think it's coming from a good place place in terms of the overall effect is there was chatter after this movie got released that it's one more instance of pixar queer baiting its audience and i really have to scratch my head at that because okay first of all if i tilt my head and squint yeah i see it you know if if somebody were to try and tell me this is pixar queer baiting i'm like i see where you're going because the boys are very comfortable with each other it's just one of those things where I feel like an old man. Do kids not act that way? Like, I, you know, is like I I was super comfortable with my friends and like going on Boy Scout camping yeah. trips and stuff. Like, well, maybe they do and maybe they don't. It, it's it certainly depends on the community, the environment, you know, the 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 way they're raised. There's all kinds of factors. I I, I don't like I wouldn't look at two boys hanging out like this and think, oh, they're clearly going to grow up and be gay. Yeah, let's be honest. Like films and stories where the children are specifically homosexual, they are important and they should exist and they should be there should be more of them. Like I'm thinking of even like a movie like Tomboy, you know, because mm-hmm. there are a lot of children who recognize this this part of their identity very early on. It's funny because in some ways, not funny haha, it's funny interesting. In some ways, that's really lucky that they're able to see that in themselves at such an early age. In another way, it's really unfortunate because it's going to make things really difficult for them for quite some time. But all the same, I don't think it's fair to conflate affection, comfort, emotion, and homosexuality. Because I think along with the fact that that is really, really reductive... Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're also then saying to boys the world over, if this is how you act, this is how you're going to be perceived. And I don't, I don't think that that's fair because I think we do actually need to get our boys acting better towards people in general and towards each other. But we can't start instilling in them the fear of, oh, well, if I'm sensitive or if I'm emotional, people are going to think I'm gay. Right. And it's not even a, a, a thing of homophobia, like, oh, there's nothing that could be worse than being thought to be mm-hmm. gay. There's nothing that can be worse than being perceived as something that you are mm-hmm. not. So it's like when I write a review and I somehow get called a communist and a Nazi. <laughs> and like, it's not the insult that hurts. It's the fact that like there's someone walking around with a, a misplaced idea about me. Oh. Um it's also the fact that, like, I then wonder if my writing wasn't clear, if two people could come to such wildly different conclusions. <laughs> but, like, I remember being in in high school and having, like, a period of time where I was like, I think I might be at least bisexual, if not homosexual, because, like, I really care about one of my friends who's going through a hard time. And it's hurting me so much that they're going through a hard time. And, like, you know, obviously, like, heterosexual men don't feel that way about other men. And like, that's a, that's a huge indicator of how diseased our culture is when you can't feel that way without believing that it must mean that you are romantically attracted to someone. And what's hilarious is that there is a show on HBO called Luck and in it, there are, there's a character played by Kevin Dunn, who's like an emphysema riddled, like wheelchair bound guy and he's friends with a bunch of other degenerate gamblers. And he has a moment where he says to one of them, I think I'm queer for you because like, I worry about you all the time. And like, you know, when, when you're doing something stupid, I feel really upset. And his friend is like, yeah, but like, you know, I hate to break it to you, but if you're going to be gay, there's a whole other thing that you got to do. And I don't think either of us wants that. And it is just that that conception of like if you were raised to see that kind of closeness as only being indicative of one thing, it's going to be a problem. It's it's one thing that like Marvel is against like showing any romantic pairings, like but it also seems like they don't even like showing friendships. 
like it's it's like in a lot of our our culture like we just don't let that be a thing yeah we could be here for a while but there are moments in these shows and in these movies where one character will give another character a look and again everybody kind of gets up in their up in their knickers of oh look they're probably they're queer baiting right there and and this is a thing and it's like okay i think we've gone 20 plus years of far too much fan fiction that we're now seeing oh, it in every last little corner. And again, I want to be really clear about this. If that was the underlying story of Luca, that Luca and Alberto happened to be two homosexual boys understanding this about each other early, that's wonderful. That's a great thing. I don't think for a hot second that is what Pixar is trying to do. I think they are trying to say that, first of all, I think they're actually trying to say that boys at a certain age, especially, you know, when they're isolated the way these, this community is, they're just really comfortable being human beings, you know, and being mm-hmm. affectionate and being caring and being sensitive and not seeing a damn thing confusing or messaging about that. Right. And the other thing is, uh, honestly, like, you know, if you want to walk out of Luca and say, like, oh, you know, like, oh, they had this whole movie, but they just couldn't have those two boys kiss. And it's like, yeah, but they didn't have a boy kiss a girl right. either. Like, you're, you're, if you were if you were walking out of this upset, it is because you have set a threshold for what you need to define. Like, give me a solid indication that Luca has a sexual feeling about a woman or about a boy or about a fish a girl like yeah or anything like also he's a he's a sea monster so god only knows how they reproduce Um, (laughs) i think we've taken a turn there's nothing like they don't have him say like oh i can't wait to go off with julia and also like in the credits they're going to show us getting married like even in the credits it shows him and alberto keeping up their relationship and it shows luca and julia maintaining their platonic friendship that is defined by their mutual love of finding out stuff about the universe yeah he like she takes him to a bookstore and he looks like he's gonna cry I understand people's frustration about it because like, sure. But also like now as a father, I'm like, I don't know if I want to see any 13 year olds hooking up, you know, in a movie. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't really like, you know, you walk out of Luca and if you were to tell me that you think Luke is gay, I, I have nothing to fight back against that because I have no way of proving that he's straight. And so if you were a person who gets out of this movie, oh, like, you know, having a close friendship like that with Alberto would be so wonderful. You know, because then we could like explore one another and become closer and eventually grow up and get married. I'm like, yeah, that's totally cool. Go for it. Like, it doesn't feel like a bait and switch. That's it. Just feels like that's not what the movie had on exactly. Mind. And that, I think that's my point. Is anybody who can who accuses this movie or its ilk of of quote queer baiting unquote? I think they're being really disingenuous to what you know Pixar wants to do. Like, I you know I I really got to believe that if they wanted to do that that they at this stage in the game they would just put it out there um you know before we kind of tie this off i do want to kind of get back to the the you know the, the influence of this movie like there is obviously an awful lot of studio ghibli that informs this mm-hmm. movie like right down to the fact that the town's name is porto rosso and there's a ghibli movie named porco rosso um there's all kinds of cute little italian winks and nods all over the place um you know not the least of which is the fact that uh alberto has a picture of mastriani taped to the rearview mirror of his vespa (laughs) as a child does i do love how much of those flourishes are in this movie without it ever truly going overboard and i also like that like there is enough of the underwater stuff that is is interesting too. Like you know, you said he's a little shepherd boy. It's it's kind of interesting to watch that play out. I mean, the, and I like that his uncle from the deep is translucent <laughs> and repellent. Well, I mean, that's the crazy thing is like they you know in there like they're they're talking about how he's maturing too quickly and they're kind of scared of the the crowd he's running with. So they're going to send him off to live with his uncle. It's just in this case, his uncle happens to live deeper in the ocean. But I mean that that metaphor. Right, it's the fresh prince. Bel Air, yeah. except instead of going to Bel Air, he goes to the Marriott. <laughs> it's, I mean, the, the crazy thing about this movie is it actually, by and large, abandons the ocean for most of it. Like, that's pretty. That's pretty brave to kind of paint this thing as sea monsters, but spend most of our sea monster time on land in this charming little hillside village. Yeah, it, it does offer up a lot of interesting ways for them to like nearly get caught. Though. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, which I, I love. which is the, the spit take, yeah. the, 
the rain at night. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the sky leaked again, right? Um, <laughs> even when like the mother is trying to find Luca, and she keeps you know kicking kids into the into the fountain, which I don't know how she didn't oh, like yeah. get a, like a crowd around her at that point. But except for the fact that you know she's really deft at her job, um, we could be here talking about this movie for a long time. But we do have other things to touch on. We end every review here on the matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Brian J. Rowan, what would be your souvenir from Luca? I would love a bowl of Trinidad pesto. You uh, you stole my answer. And you know what? I am really happy because Pixar actually went ahead and told people how to make that pasta. Um, really? Yeah, it includes. It includes. It'll be in the show notes for this episode. It includes green beans. I didn't catch that part, um, but I'm, oh, okay. I'm. Yeah, I'm totally looking forward to making it. It, it requires like an awful lot of basil, but I can't wait. Um, it, it's my. That's my answer too. By the way, you, you totally stole my answer. I want that. I want that pasta la pesto. We rate here in the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Brian J. Rowan, Luca, one to four. What are you doing? Uh, you know, I. On Letterboxd, I gave it four out of five. Okay. So I guess if we're doing three uh, or if we're doing out of four, it's like, what, three point two, three and a half thereabouts, half, something like that. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm there as well. Um, Pixar at this stage in the game is competing against themselves and they have created some masterpieces over the 26 years they've been in business. This is not quite a masterpiece, um, but there is a lot to love about it. Um, and, and I only say that because they're, for me also, they're coming off a run. Their last two movies, so like both uh, Onward and Soul, were movies that I really, really loved um, top to bottom for different reasons. And this is, I wouldn't say it's a step down, but it's a step to the side. So yeah, this is a three and a half for me, three and two thirds for Brian J. Ron. Um, what do you, well, I, I love that. I love that Onward, and and Luca show that they can they can just do like a, a touching like family story. Yep. And I love that Soul shows that they're also still not afraid to be like, hey kids, you're all gonna die. die one day. Yeah, no. Which again is the reason why when my daughter suddenly said, Can I watch the one with the glowing people? I was like, Oh crap. <laughs> like, again? Really? We're gonna have to go through all that again. <laughs> Clock's ticking, man. You're gonna have to have a conversation. Um we ordinarily at this point in the show we would move on to the other side, but we're not gonna do that this time, uh just to kind of keep the line moving and get this episode out on time. Um, but we will kind of suggest other movies that came to mind after watching Luca. Uh, Mr. Rowan, why don't you go first? Where, like Briefly, where do you think somebody could go to after this movie if they mm-hmm. wanted to do some further reading? One of the things this movie made me think of was Pete's Dragon, the new one. Oh, okay. I never hear anybody else talk about that movie in a positive light. That is insane because that movie is... I adore the heck out of that movie. I've never heard anyone talk about it in a negative light, I don't think, but I just, I feel like it doesn't get its due. I mean, I, that movie is just shockingly good. Yeah. Like it's, it's, and I, I love, I love uh, David Lowry. I was going to say it's directed by your boy, right? I know it is. It's incredible. And, and like, yeah, he, he, um, he did uh, Ain't Them Bodies Saints. He did Ghost Story and uh, he's got the Green Knight and uh, he did the Old Man and the Gun, which was also great. And yeah, I mean, just in terms of of that kind of thing, it's like a boy of a similar age, likewise, like leaving the kind of wilds from which he is used to living and entering into a society and finding a home and a family. The films of Studio Ghibli in general, I feel, are a good one, you know, in terms of like kids exploring and and another movie that my daughter like, you know, mainlined once she saw it was My Neighbor Totoro. Right. You know, and it's just that kind of conception of like, it's not because there's action happening. It's not because it's like slapstick comedy. It's because like she just loves this concept of like seeing the world. She still asks when we're going to go in the forest and look for Totoro. (laughs) Hold on to these minutes, man, because they are fleeting. Um, I know. It's funny. I like when I did some digging into the creation of Luca, apparently. Casa Rosa was inspired by from up on Poppy Hill, which I am surprised because I always thought that was considered like lesser 
Ghibli, I enjoyed that. That's actually I saw that in, at TIFF. I saw that in a theater. But everybody who I've talked to about it is all like, "Yeah, it's fine." But apparently, he loves it, so he was inspired by that movie. Um, but yeah, any, any pretty much any Ghibli movie you could pair this with, and you'd be you'd be doing just great. Um, well, one of my suggestions, if somebody wanted to go on to it, another piece of animation from this year that is far better than it had any right to be was for me um is the millers versus the machines oh you know i never saw that and it's it's crazy because obviously i love that creative team and everything and that was a big that was one of the ones where it was like they sold it to netflix and i was like oh great i can watch it with my daughter and then i just like i don't know the rollout happened and i was like all right that's happening well it's hard these days because everything's coming straight to us so we don't need to like you know plan our lives around it and it's just like it's it's always there so it's really hard to kind of keep up with these things one thing i like about that movie kind of going back to the more you know touchy part of our conversation about luca is the central character in Miller's versus the machines, the daughter who is kind of the, the, the impetus for the whole dominoes to start falling. Um, she is gay. Um, and there's, it, it's almost like blinking. You'll miss it. And it's, and it, once again, it just is, you know, it's not a big deal. It's not anything. And it's just like, it's there and it's really clearly there. So it's like, you know, one of these things of, of any, anybody saying, the animation studios don't want to go there because they're too worried about parents pushing back. It's like, you know what? They're going to go there and they're going to go there more and more. And a movie like Miller's vs. the machines, it's just, it's, it's in there and it just happens and it's like, deal with it and, and move on. Um, Maybe I should have jumped in earlier, but it is in fact, the Mitchell's vs. God damn it. Yes. Thank you. And, um, you know, it's it's funny you bring that up because like that was a thing way back in uh, the Paranorman times. It was. Do you recall Paranorman? I do. The the Leica movie when at the end when the girl has been like flirting with this big, hunky lug of an idiot played by Casey Affleck, right. and she talks about going to the movies with horror films or something, and he's like, "Yeah, my boyfriend loves those." And everybody was like, "What?" Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. the Mitchells versus the Machines uh, is another really good like story of a family and family dynamics and the way family works together. Um, it, and it's it's a lot of fun. Um, and it's right there on your TV. Um, the other one that came to mind just because I saw the poster in the background of Luca is I thought about La Strada. I was going to say, is it La Strada? Yeah, it is La Strada, yeah. <laughs> Fellini is one of those directors that it's like, you know, where do you even begin with Fellini? And he's got just so many movies, and some of them are so weird, and some of them have such little points to them, you know. Uh, but La Strada is just really straightforward of here's these people literally on the road, in case anybody didn't know what La Strada translates to. Um, it, you know, and, and it's just... Again, so charming, so funny, so just quick, easy, in and out. And, you know, Luca is on a journey. The characters in La Strada are on a journey. I, you know, I, I don't, don't get me wrong. I don't think your daughter is going to dig La Strada. But if somebody was like, you know, if you had an older kid and they wanted, they were getting curious about Italian films, I think La Strada is a pretty good starting point. You know, you say that, but she loved Minari. So. Oh, well, it shows what I know, right? <laughs> You know what? Show her La Strada. See how it goes. Yeah, we'll there, we, there we go. That is... That and last year at Marion. Oh, my God. You're a strange... What's going on? Literally don't you, know. You are a strange man, Rowan. That is episode 264 of the Matinee Cast. I'm really, really thankful that Brian J. Rowan was able to come by and uh, and take some time for a bit of a spot start. Come on back on Monday, July 12th for episode 265. Uh, we might be discussing Black Widow or we might discuss Zola. We'll see what happens and what I can get my hands on. Brian is on the Film Stage podcast. What do you guys got coming up soon, man? It's, it's funny. We, we had a couple of episodes. One of them was Undine um, from Christian Petzold, yep. which is also about an underwater person. And then we also had Luca, um, but we're going to have probably Fast 9 and Zola coming up soon. Very so nice. Keep an eye out for those. Uh, enjoy. And uh, if people want to follow you on Twitter... Uh, they can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or all of the social medias at Brian J. Rowe. Very nice. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google, Stitcher Radio, Apple, TuneIn, Radio Public, CastBox, and Podchaser. If I haven't mentioned some platform that you use, 
first of all, how are you hearing me? But second of all, let me know and I'll put my show there too. Uh, everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts for new episodes drop. Feedback on Luca can be left in the comment section of the site. You can email ryan at the matinee.ca. On Twitter, I am matinee underscore CA and there's always Facebook, facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, Mr. Rowan? I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that she is moving on to Seoul, but this, I will always think fondly back on the week when I couldn't watch anything but Luca. <laughs> For Brian, I love that. I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee. <laughs>